Welcome to Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. Even if you know only a few Israeli songs, you probably know this one. Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, or Jerusalem of Gold, by Naomi Shemer. It's one of the most popular Israeli songs of all time, and it's considered by many to be Israel's unofficial national anthem. What you probably don't know is the story behind the song's lyrics. Shemer was commissioned to write the song for the Israel Song Festival, where it was performed by singer Shuli Natan to great fanfare on May 15, 1967, just weeks before the start of the Six-Day War. At the time, East Jerusalem, including the Old City, was under Jordanian control, off-limits to Jews. As you can guess from the mournful tune, the song is a lament for the divided city. How the cisterns have dried, the marketplace is empty, and no one frequents the Temple Mount in the Old City. And in the caves in the mountain, winds are howling, and no one descends to the Dead Sea by way of Jericho. Little did Shemer know that things were about to change drastically. On June 5, 1967, the Six-Day War erupted, and just two days later, Israel captured East Jerusalem, including the Old City. The shofar was blown at the Western Wall for the first time in 2,000 years, and the paratroopers who had captured the old city burst into Shemar's song. Teddy Kalek, then the mayor of Jerusalem, sent a telegram to Shemer, asking her to add a verse celebrating the victory. Shemer obliged immediately, scribbling down what became the song's final two verses. We have returned to the cisterns, to the market and to the marketplace. A ram's horn calls out on the Temple Mount in the old city. And in the caves in the mountain, thousands of suns shine. We will once again descend to the Dead Sea by way of Jericho. On today's episode, we're talking about the history of Israeli pop music. 
It seemed fitting to start with Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, not only because the song is so iconic, but because it's a great example of how Israeli pop music is always in flux. Israel has changed dramatically over its short history, and so has its music, sometimes gradually, over years or even decades, and sometimes, as in the case of Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, in a matter of weeks. Of course, no one song or even group of songs can do justice to Israel's complex history. But by listening carefully to songs that have resonated with Israelis, as we'll do in this episode, we can learn a lot about the country, both where it's been and where it's headed. Now, if we really want to trace the history of Israeli popular music, we have to go back much earlier than 1967, to the time before Israel was even a country. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Jewish pioneers, mostly from Europe, arrived in Palestine to settle the land and build a Jewish nation. The music of the time reflected those lofty goals. So many of the classic Israeli songs, both from pre-state period and then the early state period, will speak often in terms of a we, anu, anachnu, uh, with the expectation that the listener can identify with that we. This is Daniel Stein Koken, a Jewish studies scholar currently affiliated with Arizona State University. Of course, one can ask how inclusive was in fact that we, who was, in, who was excluded or what kinds of identities were excluded from that we, but nonetheless, the, the presence, the prominence of the we, of the singing we, is paramount. The song Anu Banu Alza is a classic example. It contains just one sentence repeated over and over. Anu Banu Alza, Livnot Ulhivanot Ba. We came to the land to build and to be built by it. These early songs, called Shirei Eretz Yisrael, or Songs of the Land of Israel, were often accompanied by folk dances the pioneers had brought with them from Europe, including the Hora. When you are dancing to a song, you are, in a sense, subsuming yourself within it. You are, you are in a way, acknowledging with your body the, the importance of this song. You're, de- you're demonstrating a certain kind of loyalty or fealty to it, whether you think about it or not. Often, early Israeli folk songs were sung by groups of people gathered together, a practice called shira b'tzibo that remains popular today. The importance of this kind of ritual, I think, cannot be exaggerated. This is Uri Dorchin, an independent scholar who's had visiting positions at Washington University in St. Louis, the University of Colorado, and UCLA. Singing along was really a way not only to bring people together for the fun of, of, of singing together, which is a ritual that you can find in other places too, but singing a certain songs together and by doing so to embody by way of singing the messages that was conveyed by these songs and in, in a way, I think I'm not going too far by saying that this is a, a secular prayer. Moving into the early decades of Israel's statehood, 
popular songs continued to focus on the collective and on building the land. But as the harsh conditions faced by the early pioneers eased somewhat, the songs became more playful. A good example is the song Hora Herzut. Herzut was the early settlements built by the army unit called Nachal. Nachal unit was an army unit whose goal within the army was to create new settlements. They spent some of the time as an infantry unit and, and some of the time as new pioneers creating new settlements who later became a kibbutzim. The song is about working the land, but it doesn't take itself too seriously. Hora cabbage and hora spinach, a tomato on a spear, Nachal unit hora makes you dizzy, hora lettuce, hora radish, hora tank hitched to a mule, hora strawberry commandos, Nachal unit hora makes you dizzy, Nachal settlement hora. So this song, Hora Ha'achzut, is celebrating in a very humorously way the atmosphere of the young people. We, we, we must remember that they were speaking about an 18, 19 years old, boys and girls having fun out there in the field in the Negev, just having their own community. And uh, they are going to uh, work in the fields and the orchards and so forth and having a lot of fun in the evenings uh, back in their houses. So this what the song is celebrating very far from the reality of the new pioneers that arrived in the 20s who had no time for just having fun. Military entertainment troops were another important element of Israel's music scene. In the early decades of the state, they were critical. I mean, the military was where artistic talent was found, cultivated, promoted. Nearly all the great singers of the early decades of Israel were products of the Lakot Zvayot. And also, a great many songs were written for these groups. So the state invested resources in creating songs for these groups. Many of these songs celebrated Israel's military victories or described hopes for future victories. So one great example of this is the song Mul Har Sinai, Facing Mount Sinai, which you could sort of describe as the official, quasi-official anthem of the 1956 Sinai War, in which Israel for the first time conquered the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip. And here in this song, uh, a famous uh, duo of song creators, Mohar and Walensky, kind of Israeli Rodgers and Hammerstein, if you will, were recruited even before the first shot to create an anthem for the hope for victory that was in fact achieved. So it's kind of a, the creation of the writing of this song was kind of a top secret operation, part of the military campaign, which is striking. And the song was written for the Lakata Nachal, the Nachal Entertainment Troupe, which was the most prestigious of the various uh, military bands. And this is a song that recounts in celebratory terms how the youth of Israel, how the nation of Israel has returned to the Mount Sinai of yore. The Six-Day War in 1967 profoundly changed the country. 
including its music. Not only did Israel's military victory significantly expand its borders, it also broadened the country's cultural horizons. The Six Days War, in many ways, is a watershed uh, in society and economy and culture and so forth. Generally speaking, after the Six Days War, Israel became much more open and connected to the world. This openness made some of Israel's leaders nervous. According to some accounts, a 1965 concert featuring none other than the Beatles was canceled because of concerns that the band would corrupt Israeli youth. Inevitably, though, foreign influences found their way in. It was common in the 60s and 70s for Israeli musicians to take a popular American or British song and translate it into Hebrew. Because there was such a strong focus on Hebrew culture, because Hebrew culture was so strong, or because the notion that culture should transpire in the Jewish state in the Hebrew language was so strong, or alternatively, one could say, because there was a degree of cultural insecurity about the viability of the Israeli project, and hence a real interest in emphasizing the need for culture to take place in Hebrew, there was a very prominent element of translating foreign songs into Hebrew and then singing them in Hebrew form. Sometimes songs were translated word for word. Israeli musicians would borrow from American and British songs in more subtle ways, too. I like to use the term transpiration, a synthesis of translation and inspiration, to showcase how a lot of Israeli songwriters actually, in drawing upon foreign songs, actually then recreated them in keeping with Israeli needs, Israeli reality, the Israeli situation at the time. And I think perhaps the single best example of this phenomenon is Naomi Shemer and her uh, masterpiece, Lu Yehi, you know, if, if only it could be, which is in essence, a rewriting of the Beatles, Let It Be. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. The tune is not exactly the same, and the point is, the, you know, the, the tune need not be exactly the same. There can be all kinds of refashionings, recreations. The point is, in a number of these cases, you can show that there's a clear, just a, a clear, unmistakable relationship exists between two songs. 
Even when Israeli musicians took inspiration from the U.S. and Britain, they gave their songs a distinctly Israeli feel. And I think there is no clearer example than the work of Arik Einstein. Arik Einstein in the late 60s was really making a Beatles-like kind of music. He, he also sang Beatles in Hebrew. And then a year or two years later, he makes yet another album that called Badesha Etzel Avigdor and Avigdor's on the backyard or in the grass that is much more Israeli in terms of themes and in terms of music. <laughs> But it was not the songs of the land of Israel. It was rock. But with, it was not Arik Einstein made Beatles. It was 100% Arik Einstein with Miki Gavrielov, who was the composer and arranger. So they implemented the Anglo-American influences, but makes it 100% Israeli. The American anti-war movement in the late 1960s also made its mark on Israeli music. This is very strange in a way, because on the one hand, the Israeli army is on its heyday. I mean, it's, uh, it was always glorified, but after the Six Days War, the army was really seen as the, the uh, solution to all our problems. So there are many, many songs that celebrate our military power and, and so forth. But also at the same time, some of the anti-war ideas and terminology and uh, representations were already comes to Israel. Paradoxically or ironically, we can hear them in the songs of the military ensembles. Take, for example, Shir La Shalom or A Song for Peace, released just a couple of years after the Six-Day War. So, a song for, for peace in 69 that begins let the sun rise, the morning come up, which is a direct reference or allusion to uh, let the sun shine in. Musically, you cannot, you cannot mistake the, all the intro with a heavy bass and, and just an electric guitar playing over it. Now, electric bass and electric, electric guitar is, is a new sound in Israeli music in, in these days. And it, it comes straight from the Anglo-American music of the time. The song was first performed by the prestigious Nahal Entertainment Troupe during the war of attrition between Israel and Egypt. But the words are decidedly pacifist. <laughs> Lift your eyes with hope, goes one verse, not through the rifle sights, sing a song for love and not for wars. It is kind of ironic that these ideas of give peace a chance are conveyed by soldiers in uniforms. So this is something which is something unique. 
The song is more than just a simple peace anthem. Maybe that's why it caused such a stir when it was released. It was not broadcasted in Israeli radio. It was said to discourage the, the soldiers or, or, or the nation. So it was, it was forbidden. And it, it is a very powerful, I would say, uh, protest song. Moreover, it's it not only say, give, uh, like, give peace a chance, give chance for love and not... It says, just for, forget about those who perished. I mean, this, uh, if, if Israel as a nation is, is so immersed in the worship of the fallen soldiers as the most, the ultimate emblem of self-sacrifice, so this song says, don't look back, leave them behind. It was also in this period that Israel started to export its music to the rest of the world. In 1973, the country participated in the Eurovision Song Contest for the first time before Cyprus, even before Turkey, that was, of course, a NATO member. So that's, right away, that's fascinating. So the fact that Israel is participating in Eurovision, I think, was really important, especially if we think about the 70s for Israel. I mean, we often talk, people often talk about Israel's international isolation in recent years, but they have a short memory. Israel is so much more rooted and established on the international scene now or in the last decade or two decades than it was in the 70s when the Arab economic boycott was so strong. Israel's isolation was really quite substantial. And so the participation in the Eurovision, I think, was really meant a lot for the country. Not only did Israel become a regular participant in the Eurovision contest, it did well, winning the competition four times over the decades, including two years in a row in the 70s. The fact that they then do well at Eurovision, I think also represents a kind of validation when the song then sort of goes back to Israel. So it's sort of here Israel showcasing itself as this young, energetic, strong, self-confident country on one hand, but is very happy to have that validation. There is also a Israeli insecurity, happy to have that validation that the participation and the frequent success of the Eurovision competition provides. You might be wondering why you haven't heard anything yet about Mizrahi music, an important part of Israel's music scene. Today, many of Israel's most famous and successful pop artists are Mizrahi, meaning that they trace their ancestry to the Middle East and North Africa. But that wasn't always the case. For the first few decades of Israel's existence, Mizrahi music was largely ignored by radio stations and record producers. That doesn't mean it was unpopular. On the contrary, they enjoyed an enormous popularity in the streets. And I guess in numbers, they sold much more than uh, the Ashkenazi pop star sold records. But they bypassed the record industry by creating a, a cheap produced ca tape cassettes which was very easy and to reproduce to, to produce to copy it and then it was sold on the open market stalls by the thousands in the uh, bus stations and in the markets so uh, you don't have an official statistics i mean uh, how how much they sold but obviously much more than the allegedly biggest stars of israeli pop rock uh, singers sold in the in the conventional 
trajectory of the music industry and in the official stores. So they were popular, but they were not part of the mainstream. One of the reasons Mizrahi music was shunned is that there was a general bias against Mizrahim in Israel. As we discussed in our episode on the Yemenite Children Affair in Season 1, when Israel became a state, the Ashkenazi-led government often treated Mizrahim like second-class citizens. For example, Mizrahim were forced to live in poor development towns on Israel's periphery, which limited their opportunities for upward mobility. Mizrahi music became linked to that lower status. It was associated with the poor neighborhoods, the working class people. And so it was regarded as cheap, inappropriate, not refined, simply not uh, artistically sophisticated, and, and so forth. The language, the Hebrew was not genuine. Hebrew, very colloquial Hebrew of the streets that you're not expected to, you know, respected singers to speak. Things started to change for a few reasons. In the 1977 election, the Ashkenazi-dominated Labor Party, which had governed the country since its founding, finally lost. The defeat of the traditional labor alliance just sort of created the possibility of a new kind of openness for other kinds of other approaches to Israeliness that starts to really bear fruit into the 80s. Dorchin thinks the game changer was the privatization of Israeli radio in the 80s. Up to that point, all Israeli radio and TV stations were owned and operated by the state. Once it was taken out of the hand of the state, and now it became a commercial radio and commercial television that had to approach the widest common denominator. If you want to run commercials, if you want the uh, the, the people to listen to your station and not to, to your competing channel, you cannot just to come and look down upon them and listen, we know what goods for you. Now you work for them. You have to give them what they like, what what the audience demand. And what the audience demand is the Mizrahi music. Changes in the style of Mizrahi music might also explain why it became more accepted by the mainstream. There are voices who will tell you that actually what happens though, it's not simply that Israel warms up to Mizrahi music, but that Mizrahi music becomes something that is more palatable to the, let's say, the Ashkenazic or the general Israeli ear. And so there are actually a number of, of scholars who are actually sort of quite critical or view this development rather critically, that it's not, that one should sort of, you know, pat oneself on the back or congratulate oneself from an Israeli perspective. Oh, look how open and receptive we've become. Actually, the Mizrahi music had to actually pay quite a substantial price to gain that acceptance. And often what we think of as Mizrahi music in Israel, it's not so much authentic uh, Moroccan or Iraqi or Yemenite music. It's actually very Mediterranean. It's borrowing actually quite substantially from Greek and Turkish melodies. Stein Koken gives the example of the 1988 song Tipat Mazal, or A Drop of Luck, which turns a Hava Ben, a Mizrahi singer, into a star. Mazal, 
Around the turn of the new millennium, another genre of Israeli pop burst onto the scene, hip-hop. As in the case of Mizrahi music, Israeli hip-hop thrived in Israel before making it to the mainstream. But the transition from underground to commercial success happened much more quickly. Because the hip-hop or Israeli rap, I would say, grew simultaneously with this process that I talked about, about the privatization of the Israeli media, in which the stylistic borders became more elastic, so to speak. And, uh, and Israeli producers were always looking for the next big thing, for the, for the next new thing. So hip-hop did not have to, to wait three decades as Mizrahi music had to break into the mainstream. Not surprisingly, Israeli hip-hop artists were influenced by their American peers. In particular, hip-hop's straight-talk style felt very natural to Israelis. Israelis are very famous about speaking like straightforward, like in-your-face attitude makes it easier for them to absorb the the hip-hop. But whereas in the U.S. hip-hop is associated with the African-American community... In Israel, it was never associated with any particular social segment in the level of who is doing it, who is doing it or who is consuming it, but also it never culminated into an, an image that associated hip-hop or rap in Israel with a certain community. So in Israel, hip-hop hasn't always been seen as giving voice to the disempowered as it is in the U.S. In fact, sometimes the opposite is true. Let's take the ultimate example, which is the rapper called Subliminal. Subliminal was an an Israeli rapper, the first, by the way, to make it big, the first uh, Israeli superstar rapper. And his songs gave voice to uh, a radical nationalist approach. Put in a context, it was the uh, Palestinian Intifada in the year 2000, the Al-Aqsa Intifada, there was a lot of stress, a lot of frustration, a lot of fear. The buses was bombing in the middle of, of the cities. And Subliminal just gave voice to this anger, to this frustration from the nationalist attitude. We have to be strong. We have to fight as we once did. We cannot be the bleeding heart liberals that we've became during the Oslo Accord and so forth. So it was really powerful statement of the military Israeli. When Israelis first heard subliminal songs, some of them balked. He was accused by many people that you cannot be the soldier, the policeman, the one who speaks from the standpoint of the nation. Of the, of the politicians, whereas rap is always give the alternative, the subversive voice of those, those who are oppressed by the nation. Here is a rapper who also the oppressor. But Subliminal felt like he was staying true to hip-hop's ethos of telling it like it is. First of all, this is what I think. This is what I feel. I am frustrated. I'm pissed off about what's going on. And I just put it out. And I do it just as a rapper 
would do it. First of all, the fact that I'm doing it, that I don't think twice and I'm just spitting all out, this is what rapper supposed to do. Subliminal quickly became very popular, probably because whether you agreed with him or not, he just plain sounded good. <laughs> Over the last 20 years, Israeli hip-hop has evolved in interesting ways. The seminal experience of making hip-hop in Israel in the early 2000s was an uh, experience of working with a back against the wall in the sense that Israeli uh, rappers felt compelled to explain, even, I would say, justify their artistic decision to rap. Unlike other non-Israeli styles that were imported in earlier ages, here the, the image of rap as black people's music made it all the more difficult because uh, Israeli rappers were accused by trying to, to, to imitate people who, uh, whom they, they will never be able to be. In order to prove themselves, early Israeli rappers usually produced music with a message. Sometimes very explicitly in the, in the text they are saying it, but even if they're not uh, explicitly said, you can actually hear it that they are trying to convey the impression that they have something very important and serious to say. They are not doing it just for fun. As Israeli hip-hop became more established over the last couple of decades, artists began to feel more free to produce music that's fun and playful. The youngest generation of Ethiopian rappers, like Eden Derso, heard here, are a good example. These artists take on serious issues, Dorchin says, like the discrimination faced by Ethiopian Jews in Israel, but they also have fun with their lyrics. In recent years, with the status of Hebrew firmly established, Israeli pop music has become more open not only to other genres, but also to other languages, including Arabic. Many musicians that use Arabic in their songs trace their roots back to Arab countries. The women who make up the group Awa, which means yes in Arabic, are half Yemenite and focus on that side of their heritage in many of their songs. Their song Habib Galbi, The Love of My Heart, is a great example of this and was actually the first song in Arabic to reach the top of Israel's pop charts. So that's quite, quite substantial. Habib Another good example is the song Tudo Bam, which borrows from the Portuguese language and from Brazilian culture. (laughs) 
saying very explicitly in the song. It's Lena Omrim Shabeseder, it's Lam Omrim Shatudubom. So we say Beseder for things are all right, and they say, you know, over in Brazil, Tudubom. And so, and that's, you know, at the center of the song, this notion of sort of translation from Hebrew into another culture, from another culture into Hebrew. But the song is, it's called Tudubom, it's not called Kol Beseder. And so there is this element of infusion into the song, about infusing the energy of Brazil into Israel. So I think that that notion of a kind of need to appeal to draw upon uh, foreign songs, foreign musical traditions is very much uh, still alive in Israel, but it, it's reflected in a somewhat different in a somewhat different way, much less in terms of an actual translation into Hebrew of specific songs or of a kind of transpirational, as I like to say, sort of recreation of that song in an Israeli format. Dorchin and Stein Koken both predict that Israeli pop music will continue down this cosmopolitan path. Uh, typical of that, an Israeli musician will spend uh, more time, say, in Berlin or in Amsterdam than in Israel, or bands whose members are scattered across three different continents. Uh, many of them, just when they create new music, play their role wherever they are, send it over to the musical producer, they mix it together. In many cases, you can never tell that this is Israeli people making this music. There is nothing distinguished Israeli in it. This is a far cry from when Arik Einstein brought the Beatles sound to Israel. There was England and Israel and, and something that was created by the mixture or the fusion of the two. Now, these days, you cannot detect the point of origin. And moreover, it is not necessary at all. No one is actually bothering to, to try to understand where this music comes from at all. There, it's, it's just there on the air. Quite literally, I mean, this, uh, this music is put on, you know, cyberspace in the YouTube or Bandcamp or iTunes or whatever. This is where Israel is, is, is going to in terms of music, but more broadly in terms of culture. So I'm not saying that the sense of Israeli culture is not important at all, or that there is no such thing that you can call Israeli culture, but that the local culture or any locality, be it Israel or, or any other locale, already saturated by multiple inputs taken from different places. Dorchin thinks Noga Erez is a good example. Noga Erez, one of the most successful Israeli artists in the world, but then I feel somewhat uncomfortable talking about her in terms of Israeli artists. Yes, she is Israeli. Noga Erez, her name betrays her. She is Israeli. She does not perform in Hebrew. She makes a very updated contemporary music in terms of production. She raps, although she's not a rapper. She sings. Can we get some more subs so he can feel it? Dum 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 yum no bunny yum no sloppy boy I never beg for no money fun fun funny you run from no I'm running no I pardon no one nobody Jump 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 your right hand jump it like a big bucket you had the mic now you can't jump it dum 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 Just because Israeli music has changed so dramatically over the decades that doesn't mean it's completely broken with the past. 
On the contrary, Stein Koken points out how classic Israeli songs often have an interesting afterlife. For example, the 1973 hit song Pitom Kam Adam, or Suddenly a Man Wakes Up, became an anthem of the 2011 social protests when Israelis took to the streets to speak out against the high cost of living. The man in the song's title is a metaphor. Suddenly a man wakes up in the morning, reads one verse. He feels he is a nation and begins to walk, and he sees that the spring has returned and the tree is turning green since last fall's tree shedding. Thirty years later, the lyrics took on a new meaning. That is to say, suddenly a man got up and wasn't going to take it anymore started complaining about the society and wanted things to change. But I think that does characterize a fair amount of Israeli protests on. It's protesting particular policies or aspects of the country, but nonetheless doesn't ultimately or fundamentally break with the Israeli project as such. Still, it's fair to say that the story of Israeli music is a story of constant evolution. For Dorchin, that's what makes it so exciting. Music as as a cultural expression, never remains stable or, or passive. It's not just, we, okay, we have our Israeli music, so to speak, and then we'll just write yet more and more song in the same style. I mean, it's always on the move because people are on the move in the modern and late modern age that cultural expressions and fashions and sounds are circulated throughout. So we always try new things. Some of them are being accepted, some of them being rejected, some of them are being changed. So the music always gives us a reflection of the point in time in which we are now, just to say something about what Israel is is like at a certain point, but also it, it's, it says something about what Israel may become. We hope you enjoyed the final episode of the third season of Adventures in Jewish Studies. For season four, I'll be stepping down as lead producer and handing the reins over to the very talented Jen Richler, who will take the show to new and even greater heights. I've had a blast producing the podcast over the past three years. I've learned an amazing amount about Jewish history and culture, and I hope you have too. So thanks, as always, for tuning in and for supporting the show. Adventures in Jewish Studies is made possible with generous support from the Salo W. and Jeanette M. Barone Foundation. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. Jen Richler is the lead producer for this episode. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish Studies member organization, featuring an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members, as well as public programming. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org to learn about joining if you're a Jewish Studies scholar or to find out how to bring a Jewish Studies scholar to your community. 
If you'd like to support the AJS and learn more about what we do, we invite you to join our new Friends of the AJS group, which will keep you informed about the latest research, books, and developments in the field of Jewish studies. For more information, go to associationforjewishstudies.org forward slash friends.